I mean, do you have signed things? Is that like a memorabilia thing for you? Do you need things signed? All, all, all the people I would want to sign things are dead. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so you've never met anyone that you would want to sign things. Do you think it helps that they're dead? Does it help you to enjoy someone's work? I think so. I don't have that that feeling of like embarrassing myself if I ever came across them. Yeah. So I suppose that's, uh, you know, a, a plus to it there. But any encounters, like I've, I've had very rare encounters with any kind of like celebrities uh i met ryan styling once uh when he was doing ryan styles that's what it was see okay. i'm so bad that i can't remember his name cut cut the part out where i fucked up his name <laughs> yeah i met i met ryan styles uh once because you know he has that kind of improv club up in bellingham right um, so whose name but... is it anyway <laughs> it's ryan styles i met yeah. uh the president of the united states of america that the band Oh, not, not, not an actual, actual president. No. You didn't meet Donald Trump? No, I've met them a couple of times. And I have their signatures on two different CDs. Not Trump's, but the president's <laughs> of the United States of America. That's cool. Yeah, I do. I, there, there's not many celebrity bump-ins up here, I guess, you know. And I haven't, I haven't gone to that many places where you might encounter <laughs> celebrities. I mean, I was friends with a few cool bands, but I don't feel like that's a bump-in. I feel like if you're friends with someone and they grow bigger, then it doesn't count as like a unique celebrity experience. Yeah. It's, um, it's like a different level of bragging rights then. Right. Like you're not meeting a celebrity, you're, you're acquaintances with them. And at that point you like, it, you're not getting autographs anymore because <laughs> right. you've be weird. moved on. Them. Yeah. It would be weird to ask your good friend for, <laughs> for an autograph. Like I had friends that were like adjacent to the Seattle music scene and worked on all the important albums that came from Seattle. I, I mean, uh, some punk rock bands from Portland and Seattle, I, I knew members of. So, uh, I mean, I guess that's as close to adjacent to anyone that people would cheer for as I have been. Um, I wrote uh, Bill Clinton an email in third grade and after four weeks, he emailed me back. Um, that's, that's my other presidential I experience. Get a lot of encounter persons that, that reminded me of something I probably haven't thought about forever. When I was like in, in the same age group there, like they had an assignment where they had us send le like letters to a bunch of like corporations or, or whatever, people who make things. I don't know, you know, whatever. And I think mine was like a like a bacon manufacturer or something. <laughs> you wanted it. You well, wanted to message them. Yeah, I well, would that, too. like they gave us like a list of things like and some some kids got like letters back they got like care packages back they got sent stuff from the various companies and i was very disappointed that they didn't send me any bacon i my favorite trips in school were always going to like the food creation plants and watching how all of them worked i felt like i was inside on things that kids my age were like really ignorant to um like how food was actually made and like a I was very interested in those kind of trips. Um, going out to the wilderness, also very good for, for kids' trips. Uh, but, but I think those like factory tours of restaurants, those always really interested me the most. Have you, have you ever been to the, the Tulmuk factory? In, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, whenever we pass by, when, when we happen to be passing by uh, that area on our last trip down to the coast, we just stopped in because it's, it's nice. It's a little fun thing. It, it's renovated in like the past five years and it's super nice and uh you get free cheese yeah you do you you get free <laughs> cheese. Super nice. but, cheese but whenever i look down at the people working on the fact because it's like you know you walk through the whole thing you see the whole assembly thing whatever i'm just like man that must be awful to just like 
every day you're at work and there's these people gawking at you all the time. It's like a zoo exhibit for uh, yeah. for workers. Uh, very very odd. I hope they get paid more because yeah. of that, but I highly doubt it. Yeah, very doubtful. Um, the animals in the zoos also don't get paid. Um, I did go to the zoo recently. You did. How, how did. was the zoo? It was a lot of fun. Uh, I love the zoo. <laughs> it's good as an adult. You would think that maybe it loses something. I feel like it really gains something. As I, I agree. I think as a kid, like your attention span really like disappears after like the first hour at the zoo. Right. And you don't appreciate the animals as much as you do when you're an adult and you get to, you know, catch them at, at interesting times. I think the, the coolest thing this last trip was we caught an elephant uh, when he was out playing around in the water. At one point, you know, he was like, you know, drinking water like you see him pick up it with the trunk and stuff and uh you know he's splashing around like he's spraying himself on the face and it's just really cool uh there was also a moment at one point where he scratched the underside of his stomach with his penis and that was interesting yeah (laughs) never seen that before my favorite animal at the zoo is the tapir because he has a giant dick Um, (laughs) like his dick is proportionately larger than any like mammals to their body i think that's just fucking cool i mean I mean, I I would like a dick that is yeah. also gigantically proportionate to my body, but it seems also cumbersome yeah. uh, in some ways. But I didn't see any of the tapers this last time. There's also like the lions weren't out. That was sad. But I did catch the polar bear. There's a new polar bear exhibit here at the uh, the Portland Zoo. I feel like the animal is just about as good as the size of its dick for like viewing, wouldn't you say? Probably it's proportional. Do do you, do you have uh would would you say that translates across uh, gender lines then, and that the size of the vagina is of equal importance? I believe so. Because um, having like if, it's if not something I look if, for if though, like if, on an animal, like the size of the vagina. I notice well, a dick on an animal. But... Exactly, it's kind of hard not to. Like I said with the elephant, there thing that the guy was hanging trunk, you know. <laughs> It's fucking huge. Like, and he could use it to like scratch the inside of his stomach. I was, I was exceedingly impressed with that. I was like, wow, it is really like a, a third arm. Right. I mean, that's very useful to have. I mean, you wish that you had that much control just to. But man, animals are so blessed. Aren't they? <laughs> I feel like this went down a weird path. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you also came out to visit me <laughs> this last week. Um, and we went for burgers at a, at a shop. We realized it had been two years to the this date, basically, that we had seen each other. That's yeah. crazy. It was really crazy. And um, the, the name of the place was Little Woody's to, to kind of tie in with our dick theme here. They have, a, they have like these options where they'll give you like cups for like milkshake dipping or they have the best like queso sauce. Uh, they have really good, like a New Mexican burger with like green chilies. But uh, we all went for the straight burger. Sometimes simplicity is just what you want. I think. If, if I'm ever at a new place, I, I want a burger without any of the fixings. Really, I need to try yeah. your burger meat and your, you know, your bun there, and see how that is before we go in with any of the other elements. Uh, about a week before I was next door doing a, a Uber assignment, there was a, a shooting while I was in the in the shop there. Uh, so I I realized like lightning, you know it. You know, if you get struck in one place, you'll never get struck there again. So I realized that it was completely safe for us to go to this outlet mall. Even like, even though even though as we were walking up to the place, we encountered a situation where a guy slammed the gas driving away from 
what I assume was his girlfriend or some kind who was, I don't think, wearing pants after maybe he Maybe not like, a girlfriend, a, then. Let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's But there was some kind it's of terrible. relationship there. Yeah, and maybe. she was chasing after him, screaming. At Good. one point, he, he skipped past other cars behind a stop sign to make a turn to get away from her. It was... It's pretty nuts. Beautiful white center. Um, the gem of Seattle, as it's always called. I love it here. I love the diverse neighborhood. I love the, the different shops. You probably walk by at least a, you know, a Korean supply shop. A, it it a, looked like it was a cool looking kinds. place. Like there was a lot of, you know, nice looking like restaurants and stuff around. I saw like a crawfish restaurant. Yeah, I want to go try that. That was cool. It was It, it was nice. It was just also... A little trashy you know like yeah. there, there's a little bit of that there which is fine again it's, <laughs> it's what we call multicultural well what where's the first place i i took you when when we met up for the first that's time that's true that's true you know what it was <laughs> it was a classier area than the tip bar you brought me to you would say it was <laughs> uh i was more comfortable i guess i don't think i quite knew what twin peaks was before we went to it um i thought it you know i knew it wasn't show related uh but it, I thought it would be like adjacent to like the theme of, of something like that. Uh, I I didn't quite realize they meant breasts by, by the Twin Peaks. The... It makes sense though, I yeah. guess. Uh, but you know, like, cause there aren't any other like Washington centric Twin Peaks to kind of consider, you know? Yeah. So obviously it's a euphemism. I don't know why you would think otherwise, but it was a good time still. And it's a, it's a fond memory of meeting up for the first time. You know, those, those first time jitters when you kind of, getting to know someone online you've never seen or heard them before so we went to halloween that time which was our first episode of this podcast don't listen to it yeah don't don't do that uh i'm surprised that you decided to keep them when you transferred everything over honestly (laughs) i've thought about deleting them i've thought sometimes that we should just make like a hard break and be like new show started at 90 with our bullet in the head and then, like yeah. that's our that's our new podcast, and the other one's just some old thing. Uh, I would I wouldn't blame you, but at the same time, I respect and appreciate the prospects of uh, uh, posterity. Yeah, and just keeping it there. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not gonna go back and listen to it though. Like I said last week, I don't even go back and listen to the episodes we record today. Yeah, so you can bet I'm not gonna go fucking listen to that. that I mean, shit. I don't either, and I edit it, so that should <laughs> edit. tell us. Yeah. I think the good thing about posterity is it gets us to episode 123, and I'm Calvin. One, two, this is three. David. One, two, three, four, five, six. Run, 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 run up. Going faster miles an hour. Gonna drive faster, stop and shop. With the radio on. I'm in love with Massachusetts. And the neon when it's cold outside. You know, eventually we'll find the right way to have a good opening discussion and be recording it at the same time. Uh, I'd rather not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, in case you decided to cut anything, I'm going to do a second intro. Uh, Welcome back to the Twin Geeks cast this week. Uh, This is David. We're here with Calvin, as always. uh, And we're here to talk about movies. I'm actually, I'm really excited for this episode, Cal. Um, I know last week was a really great episode, I assume, because like I said, I don't listen to these. I hope um, it was. 
yeah, it, it seemed to be. People seemed to enjoy it. I think uh, we covered a good range of topics and had good energy for it, despite your, uh, you know, debilitating tooth pain. How's that by going, the way, by the way? It's still going. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's no longer debilitating, but I feel the sharpness of pain in my jaw in both places. It spread into my chest and my upper body, which is good. Um, I uh, Just that tension, just imagine clenched jaw for an entire week and then how that would obviously spread to everything the jaw's connected to. Uh, good stuff. Uh, I'm glad I had Tribeca and, uh, and some other things to do during that time. Yeah, to, to distract you. And, you know, it was it was nice to, to get together. It didn't seem like you were in much pain when I saw you uh, this past weekend when I was passing through and we had burgers and such, which is good. It was good to see each other again. And hopefully we'll see each other again again soon. Yeah. But, you know, when when movies are available to, to again, I mean, movies are available, but I'm waiting for something that, that we both really want to see together. Yeah, we'll get back to a movie together. Um, how do we want to go through Tribeca? There's so much that I Tribeca. saw. Tribeca, yeah, there is so much. Uh, mostly good stuff, uh, from what I understand. Yeah, right? should I focus on the mostly good things? Uh, well, you know me, I love I love to hear you, you trash a movie every now and then. So if you have anything there to uh, to talk about, let me know. Are are you talking about what you guys are going to talk about? No, we're we're recording. I'm sorry. It's okay. We can we can stop and can you just make coffee? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you guys were like prepping. No, no. It's all good. No, we're going to keep this in the show. We're keeping this in. Okay. Well, I've got my coffee here. uh, In case you want any, I have water. You can see it says hydro cell, so that means it's water. Yep. It's good. Mine. Mine says. The Twin Geeks, so you know it's crap. Um, check out the <laughs> Twin Geeks store on a drop-down menu. Do you think anyone could find those drop-down menus? Maybe. Uh, I guess we'll just have to keep talking about it every week to yeah. to get people to go buy our stuff and uh, give us money. Um, I, th- I think we're going to get some more stuff in the near future here. I'm, oh, really? I'm hearing words from our manufacturer, from our from our designer. From the Twin to... Geeks elf, unnamed, yes. but nobody knows. <laughs> the the magical elf who uh, creates all our merch for us. Thanks so much to like our it. elf. I, I feel like we don't thank our elves enough. Uh, we don't. They're, you know, we have a lot of different elves here we at do. The Twin Geeks, uh, and they do a lot of different stuff for us. Um, <laughs> they, they manage our schedules. They set up our podcasting equipment. They give us back rubs while we're recording. That's true. So, uh, and a lot of them do a lot of the hard work. Um, they write our articles. That's nice. Yeah. Just to type them out. You know, we still dictate them. So, you know, we're, we're the authors, obviously. But I mean, uh, I mean, I put so many out. You you don't think that I could just write all of these. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we, we send them off, you know, to, to go get some notes for us for, for the films. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes for the daydream cast, they'll they'll play a good chunk of the games for them since you know yeah. it's so hard to find time to play a whole video game. What's well, a really demanding job playing video games? It is. It is absolutely uh, the most demanding job in the country uh, currently. They say uh, there was a poll taken, I believe. Well, I think we always found that video games were the hardest work. They're they're the the most uh, intensive art form out there. Uh, as many people have said before, many people. Wouldn't you say that uh, movies are more like uh, 
you know, you have to, it's like a submission to whatever the image is, but at least video games, it's more, I don't know, like uh, penetrating. You have to like take control of the controller and you're it's, really yeah, it's like, it's like a, your design. It's like a big animal penis, you know? Yeah. It just, like it's it, a pier. It, yeah. It's, it's intimidating at first, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm going to stop. Um, that's why they call it the joystick. I'm glad uh, they took a week off so we could do video game content on here. Yeah. We're really doing it justice. Uh, you know, I, this this was supposed to be a great episode. You know, we got we got some nice stuff lined up. This we do for, for you guys. I, uh, some some really great documentaries that we're both very passionate about. A film from a filmmaker we both really love. Very personal uh, anecdotes coming from Calvin, and here we are talking about taper penises and twice. Yep. <laughs> and just waffling while while Calvin's well, wife makes coffee. If we uh if we don't get a move on, this episode will be as long as a Tapir's penis. <laughs> this is gonna be quite the editing job for you. I have no idea what you're gonna do if you're what gonna do you bother. Why do you think I'm going this? to edit? <laughs> <laughs> this is the show. <laughs> Honestly, honestly, I can't tell if, if like, you, you could be going either way on that. You could be serious and this could be a joke. I don't know. And I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid to know how it's going to come. I might actually have to listen this week uh, just to know what the fuck happened, because this is interesting. Should we get into the Tribeckers? Yeah. Let, tell me about Tribeca, Calvin. I would love to hear about what's been happening at Tribeca. I watched 16 movies plus like eight or nine shorts at Tribeca. So that's a whole hell of a lot. Thanks to the tooth, I was able to be pretty laid out for it. Uh, I think I should just go over the positives, though. Uh, the negatives aren't the kind that I think it's funny or interesting to really like rag on. In some well, ways, maybe you could maybe you could at least give me kind of like a a, a brief like idea of because because from the, the perspective of me and seeing you know the various films you're watching, it seems like it's it's leaning towards a lot more like negative mundane stuff as opposed to real special things coming out this year. I suppose maybe mundanity is kind of like seeping through the schedule in a way that it usually wouldn't because there's not as many things being made. Uh, without limitations maybe a lot of these uh, early filmmakers are also being challenged with limitations that they wouldn't normally have uh, if they were just starting out so uh, uh, some maybe some early work that's pretty questionable uh, uh, too many COVID stories for me too many um, romance stories that try to modernize and be millennial about it um, there's a lot of uh, band documentaries um which, you know, your mileage might vary. You know, you have the AHA and the, you know, Rick James and all kinds of band documentaries. If you like music, there's plenty of that. But uh, the Midnighters seem to be pretty rangy in quality, too. I like to look at the Midnight section, see what the horror stuff is. Uh, for me, just two two or three winning docs this year, um, which is kind of what I go for anyway, right? I mean, uh, I was a little disappointed with the werewolves within and uh, some of the other things that i thought would be higher caliber and maybe worth a little more coverage um and it was it was a little harder to gain access to things so it was kind of a struggle and then when you struggle and then find something and it's like oh what do i do with it now it's it's a frustrating process um should i go over just a couple that are 
really good or should we yeah yeah i would up? i would love to hear what's good as well i was just kind of curious on the the, the overall as well okay uh we have a debut film from a duo of directors uh ori segev and noah dixon which is poser um about a young girl a uh, lemon uh, Lennon, excuse me, who uh, she lives in Columbus, Ohio, and she's investigating the indie scene by creating a podcast to become closer to people within the music scene. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier. This is what I did in high school. <laughs> I created like a MySpace blog so I could go hang out with musicians and became friends with some of them. And uh, But really, I created the blog just so I could go to free shows and hang out with cool people. Like in high school, that's all we're really seeking, right, is like validation and like a new friend group. And trying to create that yourself is like a it's a it's an enterprise that I think everyone goes through in some form. I mean, hey, that's that's still what I'm doing here. Anyone yeah. who wants to to come increase my social circle here, let me know. That's what this whole podcast is about. Just you're right. <laughs> now that we say it, this is exactly what I'm still doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing movie reviews. I think, so I I think that's just what life is. Yeah. Life is just a series of things you do to get social recognition, to to feel to to get that. Uh, a dopamine rush of validation back it's just a it's just a vicious circle <laughs> um so the girl starts following this gal uh, bobby kitten who she really admires and she starts mirroring some of her things they do the marx brothers thing where they're kind of like mirroring each other and doing a, uh, the, the good old, old dance yeah yeah the good old mirror scene um it copies a lot it's a derivative in quite a few ways of different movies but i i thought pretty good lens into that kind of thing and like copying people and what is actually original thought um and and doesn't matter if we go and we derive all of our aspects as teens from other people and does it matter that we're original at that point or do we build originality by combining a lot of different ideas um so that aspect of it is pretty interesting and i thought it was the best uh, non-documentary that i saw there by by good ways um i was pretty interested in it um uh, let's see. Her name's uh, Sylvie Mix. Was the, the star of the movie? I thought she was really captivating, interesting to watch too. And she's good with Bobby Kitten. Uh, there's a guy who wears a wolf mask through the movie. I thought he was kind of cool. Um, so cool characters. Uh, cool, cool scene. I like the scene that it builds around Ohio, which is a place where you don't expect things to happen, but just by like the pressure of nothing happening you realize that like teens are really creating like scenes in the midwestern states in the flyover well i, I imagine you kind of feel a connection to that too being from ohio yeah yeah you really have to seek out too what you what you want there um because it's not going to come to you like it does in seattle or the northwest uh so yeah um you really have to go searching and i think this is a good movie about searching and what it means to like find something that matters to you and uh, have a relation to it um let's just go down the line for the next two <laughs> we'll get to the the big one in a minute but yeah uh the lost leonardo which feels like a streaming ready um documentary it feels like something that would do amazing on on netflix but it's already bought by a sony pictures classic um it's about a lost leonardo portrait that uh spent years just like circulating it's a is a uh, Salvatore Mundi, um, which is like savior of the world or Jesus Christ. And it's about uh, the restoration process of that and whether or not they could trust 
uh, once they scrape away the repainting, whether it was a the person who repainted the Leonardo aspects, if it was like one of his colleagues from the 15th century who painted like that, or if it was an authentic Leonardo. So uh, it's a good examination to like restoration. I think my wife always wanted to do this. Uh, I think that's what she always wanted to do as a job. She was in Denmark one time and saw like a rolling cart and someone bringing in a painting and they were just chipping away at the old process and revealing something ancient that someone in their lifetime had never seen. I think that process really appealed to her. It's something that I think is like artistically very interesting too, uh, to be the first person, you know, in lifetimes to see something and to really engage with a piece of art. So uh, really interesting to create a documentary about, but furthermore, it goes like into the sales process and what a huge racket it is and eventually blows up into global politics as Paris is positioning to get it into the Louvre. And then what happens when the, uh, when the guy from uh, Saudi Arabia buys the painting for the highest price of any painting of all time, uh, uh, just billions of dollars, and then does nothing to exhibit it. Uh, there's no exhibition. There's nothing shown. What are you doing? Stealing a rock. A rock? Put on the umbrella. Okay. <laughs> My wife walked in with a large rock. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's been an interesting show. That, that doc does sound interesting, though. Um, I have to say, actually, um, it captures my attention, particularly the uh, ideas about preservation and yeah. uh, restoration. You know, those are things that are constantly uh, of, of my interest there in particular. And uh, yeah, definitely how then it evolves into global politics and, and the art racketeer and, and such. Uh, always uh, something that's, that's kind of interesting in the, the play of uh, the significance of something and, and when it kind of comes to the fold. I think there's some overlap uh, with that in my subject this week as well, but I'll let you get to your others before I tie that in. Well, the thing is too, that they wanted, they wanted the Louvre to really verify the piece and to find out if it was authentic, but to do that, the Louvre would want to feature it. And uh, I guess they prepared to, and then put out a book that only one person ended up buying. So there's a book out there saying that they authenticated it as a Leonardo piece um, but there's a, you know, it's, it's unknown by the end of the movie who, who really made it, but there's a, also an idea of perceived value that when the market sets a value for a painting and what art is worth, it obviously inflates it to like an unreal degree. And so it's also an investigation of what art is really worth in our culture and how we like set those values. Really interesting doc. I, I really liked it. Well, I think ultimately it's, it's an interesting conversation as well about the ownership of art, like who made right. this, you know, how much you can assign. Uh, and especially when it comes to like films, when we discuss that, you know, like we all know that auteur theory is a bunch of bunk, but in some way, many of us still subscribe to it in one way or another. And uh, especially like in, in the case of our subject today, uh, sometimes we give uh, an, an indulgence of credit, you know, uh, a little too much to them and, and we assign them as like the, the singular person behind it when, you know, really you can't be sure how much one person contributed or another. And while the world of painting obviously is a little different and in most cases, yeah, a single person sat down and did everything that's on the canvas here. You know, it sounds like in the case of this Leonardo one where, you know, it has been worked on by many people over, you know, uh, decades or not that decades, centuries. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's also then hard to kind of pinpoint exactly who the author is, but ultimately, you know, when, with art, uh, I, we as a collective, uh, as the, the observers, 
will assign a, a role of some kind. And it's often not a very nuanced one. No. <laughs> so it, I guess, you know, particularly, you know, the, the name is kind of, you know, deciding it forward there. Yeah, it is Leonardo, it sounds like. But at the same time, the doc itself doesn't completely state that, even though it is kind of, you know, nodding that that is the case at the same time. It's interesting because they keep saying in the movie it's the last Leonardo, but then the, of course the movie title is the lost Leonardo. I just think that's an interesting semantic change that that they do between the movie and the the title of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of lost again. I mean, it's not being exhibited <laughs> just because it was discovered, and then you know, and then we went through all that work to kind of refine it and find out what was actually under the picture. Now it's kind of gone again. It's well. interesting. Yeah, and and it's uh, the interesting thing as well about art, you know, and and you know, I'll mention this in my doc as well is that, you know, uh, how I guess it's kind of like that same idiom about the tree in the forest, you know, uh, if if there is a is a work of art out there but there's no one around to to see it, does it really exist? <laughs> is it really art? Um, and and so that's kind of the, the the tough question to consider there because yeah, it's there, but you know, uh, art is meaningless if it if it has you know no one who can kind of like like uh well i won't say it's meaningless it's kind of this hard thing because art is both a singular medium of expression but also of you know something of you know perception as well you know you know like uh obviously you know when it comes to to deconstructing and evaluating art and how it makes us feel there's you know cases like where where we don't consider the author's intent the death of the author you know and and so they're uh, you know, ideas and expressions and intent to doing it doesn't necessarily matter when we're observing it. But at the same time, it's also still a, a work of their own singular thoughts and feelings, you know, and talents being, you know, put onto a screen or a canvas there. And so it's still a work of art in that regard, even if it's only one person who has access to it or can, you know, observe or deconstruct it in any way. But uh, for, for the rest of us, you know, it's kind of like a, the more collective idea of art and what it means, uh, you know, for, for a society, uh, it is kind of in a more nebulous state. That's, I feel like those two were pretty good. And then uh, it's hard to get to my, my last one, which I wrote a very emotive piece about on the website, um, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Morgan Neville's uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor was really touching because I had an audience full of people who, who literally had tissue boxes out more than they had, a, you know, popcorn bags. And they were, uh, you know, just going through them like the whole audience was crying together in a collective in a way I haven't seen. Um, it's like when I saw A Quiet Place and everyone went silent and put down their popcorn. It was like that, but they picked up tissue boxes. Uh, and for the Bourdain doc, um, someone I followed very closely and was very interested in right away. Uh, as a writer, especially, I feel like his main quality on television is to be television's greatest writer. And I still feel that way. I don't think anyone ever really took that crown. I think most of the travel and food shows are very rudimentary and very focused on the aesthetic of food and not anything interesting about people or how we connect to them culturally. I think uh, Anthony Bourdain was able to break down those walls. I think he was very, um, very lucky because really he was just an anonymous chef in like New York and he, he worked at La Ailes and he was the, uh, 
you know, he was just a guy back there and you wrote Kitchen Confidential about what really happens, you know, like in the kitchen. And he wrote it with like the voice of the line crew of a restaurant, right? Like he, he wrote it with the voice of the line crew, but for like the intelligentsia, he wrote it for the New York Times to to like be like, okay, this is a guy of like high art, but he's like speaking for the people, which is what Mark Twain did, what Hemingway did, what all of our greatest authors ever did. Um, it's just tragic to me that we don't have Anthony Bourdain, but that there's so much of him that I'm filled with gratitude because of the whole doc gets to use his voice, right? What if he were just a writer and we didn't have all these shows to uh, to have him pour over like all these uh, ideas about existentialism and what he meant you know as a person and i think he was always so honest too he was bitterly honest about like the truth of what these shoes these shows were doing and um how they were really kind of bullshit to begin with and it, it shows him finding the show in a really special way uh, with his crew and obviously it didn't make any sense when he went out there and he he just tried to shoot his version of a reality or travel show and then i think he gets to something a really special point later on where he realizes that it should be through his eyes. It shouldn't be just a film of someone going and trying food. And um, initially, I think his reputation surrounded by like trying like a, the strangest food, like the strangest things that people wouldn't want to eat and kind of being that guy. But I think his really large voice for America and for the um, people who work behind the kitchen, uh, especially... Um, all of his Spanish speaking friends at Lyles and uh, from, you know, I think he really gets that too. I think he gets like the migrant American experience and he expresses it so beautifully and he's talking for those guys. And that's why I love that uh, Anthony Bourdain. I'm going to start crying here <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, it is an emotional loss. I definitely think, I think that's still one of the, the bigger celebrity losses that collectively the, the country felt and is feeling and is having a hard time getting over because it, it is kind of the same. I, I did like in your review there that you wrote the excellent review on the site, the comparisons with Neville's other subjects, uh, you know, Fred, Fred Rogers, Rogers yeah. who also, you know, was like a, you know, felt like a collective summation of, you know, uh, American goodness, uh, you know, the, the, the wholesome attributes of um, our, our, you know, our, our best of society, which is often not what we get, but what we strive for. And uh, Bourdain seemed to be a real pioneer and emblem of what we want to see in ourselves. Uh, someone and, that just touched me so, so deeply too, is someone who was like deep in his own like heroin addiction and, you know, cocaine and yeah. everything. Like when he was, you know, working the restaurant, and of course, that never really went away. He just put it into other manners of food and other ways of living. Um, uh, you could tell that it wasn't the easiest life either. I don't think for any addict, it's ever the easiest life. I, I think there's there's always a struggle there. There's always a challenge. But just his message that travel and experience always change us. I think that resonates through the movie to the point where I felt completely different after watching it. And I felt so deeply moved and and touched by the whole, just the prospect of, of his memory being uh, enlivened already. I think it's very dangerous to make a documentary so soon. Um, I think right. in the wrong hands, that could go horribly. It's only been a couple of years, and I don't know if we know the whole story, but something about having his friends there unwilling to even so much as acknowledge it because it's been so soon, 
I think that's a good way to process it because we get to feel that heartache and we get to experience it and it allows us to grieve. I think the danger of doing it too soon is getting a filmmaker who doesn't want us to feel anything, who, who, who kind of tries to protect us like a yeah. biopic would, right? Like it, it wants to manipulate us at these times, but why not make a movie where we cry the entire movie like I did with this one? How, how do you feel about Neville's approach as a documentarian here? What do you think that it as a documentary brings to the table that another biographical, you know, uh, feature that implements footage from his various shows and, you know, interviews with people who are close to him. How do you feel this one excels from the other? Like, cause, cause these kind of bio, you know, bio documentaries are like a dime a dozen. We already talked about yeah. like, you know, how music ones are like flooded at the, the market right now. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to make a, you know, a, a documentary about a, a celebrity subject matter. So how do you feel like this one, like kind of transcends those those typical trappings or does something more special with the subject because it definitely seems like neville is uh finding a a very good rhythm with these he's doing you know uh like you said not only the fred rogers one but he did the orson wells one as well and in tandem with the other side of wind uh they'll love me when i'm dead yeah Um, that's right so so yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I think he gets so close to the voice of the person he's documenting and he's so respectful and able to convey their their life. Like he's able to convey like the largeness of their personality through everything he's shooting. I think he talks to the right people. I think that's so important that uh, I think it's important to get the right people and to get the right footage and to uh, not manipulate. I think it's the main thing is that he never manipulates, but it, it always moves you. It always feels like it's, it's something fresh, even as someone who's read every book that Bourdain wrote and uh, watched every episode of every show he's made, it's still, there's still something there that I, that I wasn't getting. And I think that's what's important is even for someone who's like a extreme fan of something, of course, you, you usually watch those things and, and you get what you already know. But um, to kind of explore deeper layers of his life, I think is very important. And to explore who he really was, I think a a biopic very dangerously sometimes veers too close to what like the marketing image of someone you know puts themselves out to be to dig yeah. a little bit deeper and to show you what they wouldn't want to show you i think that matters too can can you imagine like a like a won't you be my name like tom hanks style whatever beautiful day in the neighborhood that was the name of that one like that, yeah that sounds like a tragedy that sounds absolutely awful that they already made the Bradley Cooper movie, No Reservations. So we already have one in some ways. Is, is that? Is that's an old movie, yeah. But <laughs> he's still alive at that point. But that's like a that's the movie of Kitchen Confidential and everything. Uh, I couldn't handle it. I don't. I don't think I would go for that. In the same way, I don't think it works in the same way. Uh, you would definitely need like if you were going to go that direction, like even if you wanted to entertain it, which I wouldn't recommend, like. You would need definitely more space to process that because it's such a it would feel exploitative you know to kind of try and capitalize on that whereas this sounds like is a more sincere ode and, and respectful uh, homage to, to Bourdain's legacy and the impact he had on uh, you know our, our culture. I think it's it's so interesting too how it shows like the drastic slide toward like the terminal depression that's always haunted him uh with the um asia argento uh who is you know um just uh when he kind of hands over the filming to her and kind of lets her kind of control the course of his life um 
he he did a lot for her. He got very interested in like the Me Too movement, even at the cost of a lot of his friends. He kind of outed them for some like kind of trivial, you know, just like things they said. Um, but uh, he was very, very invested in that in a way he had never really been in anything. And for him in Asia, like going and filming the show in a new way, he kind of handed over the whole show to her and kind of left behind all of his old friends who were a big part of what made the show what it was. Uh, so it gets into a lot of darkness around that too. And how he and Asia kind of went through this uh, really tumultuous part right at the end. And then uh, he's out in France filming an episode of the show and uh, a paparazzi catches her with uh, another guy, of course. And he sees that and posts on his Instagram, the uh, Amarikone scene um, about like revenge. And I forget the name of the movie, but a guy who gets shot by a paparazzi and then he's uh, trying to take out revenge for it. Um, And then of course he hangs himself and toxicology report, no uh, alcohol or drugs used or anything. So, of a clear mind Uh, it's incredible just to think of a clear mind someone like that how terminal depression really is that they could uh, without any other influence just hang themselves someone that's uh, admired all over the world Uh, it shows you that that doesn't ultimately matter in depression though it's worth getting checked out anyway and and I don't know how else it could have gone I feel like uh, he always said (laughs) about him and Argento, uh, that it would have to end badly. And I think when you take a, the daughter of an Amer- uh, Italian auteur like that, who's a very high fringe and uh, extremist and all their views, I think, it, I think you could see the dark uh, giallo ending playing itself out in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it's, it's such a tragedy and sadness, but obviously, you know, it, in, you know, it continues to inform him and and like a lot of cases with the people you know who try and give so much back to the world it's often because they can't give it to themselves because they struggle with that internally and i think that was definitely the case with bourdain yeah well it it really just seems like he put all his stake in argento and then she was like off with another guy and he just he had nothing left he put his addiction into a person which is something i i deeply understand too it's so it's so sad because it's so avoidable, right? Yeah, well, it's it seems to be, but you know, it's I, I guess as well. You know, it's one of those things where it's it's hard to fight, right. <laughs> and we have to we have to sympathize ultimately. You know, like uh, I I don't think there's any judgment there. No. You know, even you know, like I said, even if it's if it's avoidable and tragic and and it hurts, um, it's it's a it's a human foible. You know, it's something that, that it's it can be insurmountable in ways that are hard to understand, uh, particularly for people who don't necessarily go through those same struggles. But I imagine, you know, just as much for people who have. It's beautiful right at the end. There's uh, uh, people have put up like portraits of Bourdain. One of his friends says uh, right before the credits, he's like, you know what I think he'd really want us to do is really go fuck those up. <laughs> So he takes like his spray cans and it's just such a joyous ending somehow. And he, after he's covered it with all this graffiti, like this beautiful portrait of Bourdain, somehow it looks cooler and more honest to the person he was. And that also made me cry. So very sensitive documentary. I, I, I don't think I got through a single minute without a, at least choking up. It, it seems like this year has been really good for 
documentaries about people yeah. you have a great vested interest in because you had the you had the Hemingway, Hemingway documentary earlier this year too and there's a lot of like I, I think a lot of intersection between those subjects there is if they if they made one on Twain this year then I'd have all three of my favorite writers covered it would be great it's true <laughs> but yeah so so definitely a good season for for documentaries um you know an important kind of profiles and subjects here I kind of regret that we didn't order this a little differently because I feel like I would have transitioned better <laughs> into mine yeah, between yeah. here. And that and that would have been a good great lead into the subject here. But whatever. We're already too far in and this show's a mess as it is. So <laughs> it's a good kind of mess. Yeah. So uh awkward mess transition to the documentary that I watched this week, David's documentary discourse, as usual. Um I didn't plan this one. You you'll be surprised no. to know. Uh I, I've I've been aware of this documentary for a long time. Uh, and I just, I, I, I plopped down after my vacation yesterday morning, checked Canopy, see what was uh, available, see if there was anything of interest, because I knew I had to watch a doc to talk about this week, and bam, there is this, you know, Orson Welles documentary that I <laughs> knew about. It's All True, from 1993, produced by his longtime assistant, Richard Wilson, um, about the making of his uh, ambitious in ultimately failed uh, South American documentary project by the same name. Okay. Um, for those who don't know, this was the the project that Wells was working on when he was away from the editing of the Magnificent Ambersons. He was in Brazil uh, under the you know he, as part of a uh, good neighbor ambassadorship, effectively uh, urged by Norman Rockefeller who was a major stockholder uh, in RKO at the time and also a prominent politician in the 1940s. This is just after uh, Pearl Harbor. And so the, the idea was to send down this, you know, very uh, well-known and beloved American filmmaker and celebrity to uh, South America to build relations and make a, a movie about their culture down there, starting with uh, there was an urgency to get down there and film uh, the, the the carnival, you know, which uh, they they celebrate every year, mm -hmm. uh, big big celebration in in Brazil, and from there it kind of evolved and became a real kind of cavalcade of uh, ideas. Uh, it was supposed to be like a three part series. Uh, originally, there was a project that they were filming in Mexico called uh, Benito the Bull that kind of got wrapped into all of this as well. And uh, there was also this section on Carnival and uh, the Samba, especially. Wells recorded a lot of uh, footage and, uh, you know, voiceover and like kind of talking about this aspect of uh, South American culture that he really fell in love with. And then there was a third story that caught his interest as well from the, the newspapers, uh, particularly a, a, a Time issue mm -hmm. about um, the uh, Yangaderos, uh, which were these four fishermen uh, but in the northern part of Brazil, who uh, got on, on one of their rafts, you know, they, they took an expedition of a 1600 uh, ex uh, mile expedition around the coast of Brazil to go to Rio de Janeiro to petition the, the government, the president there, uh, for their, their workers' rights for pensions and, uh, you know, securing of their funds because they were essentially being extorted and exploited mm. by the, the people who own the the, the rafts and, you know, the equipment they use to give away half of their food, half of the fish they catch 
which then left them with nothing to live off of their families. And it became a huge thing in Brazil. And uh, they became like overnight celebrities and, and it really captured Wells' imagination. And so he sought to make a you know film about that as well. And so the documentary, uh, It's All True, the 1993 one here. Is it all true? No, actually. <laughs> That's that's right. kind of part of the interesting thing, particularly the story of the the the, the young Adaros is uh, fabricated somewhat, <laughs> which I hope, is I hope this was the case, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, like it's it's fictionalized, but also true in a, in a lot of ways in spirit. Um, like like Wells uh, had invented kind of like this this love story for it, like this romantic angle to create something there, which just wasn't there at all there was no romantic aspect of it yeah um and so it's like the, a very interesting thing uh about it and also but the documentary itself and that's the that's kind of the hard thing to talk about here is i, I should probably find a better way to phrase this but because there's, there's it's all true the documentary about the making of the the movie and then there's the movie it's all true which was also supposed to be a documentary scene <laughs> so it's a little hard to deconstruct here but <clears throat> The documentary about the movie is interesting, but also not entirely great. Uh, it's very brief in terms of what it covers for yeah. uh, the time period. And there's a lot of elements that kind of go on here. The political aspects, the filmmaking aspects, the production stuff, how this kind of intersected and took over, you know, uh, and took Wells away from filming Magnificent Ambersons. The timeline isn't like entirely clear because of how kind of like quickly they put it all together here they skip over some things and you know there's like a moment where they talk about having discovered the footage in 1985 uh the year of wells's death uh but they don't tell you where or how it was discovered they're just like oh yeah. one day I, I found these these reels and they were marked this and i'm like oh where did you find them right we need more <laughs> I, I i'm really interested in this so i feel like as a as a document as a documentary of the production of it's all true it's a a little haphazard but what i didn't realize until i watched it because i've always seen it listed as a documentary is that uh it's the movie it's the footage <laughs> yeah. of of it's all true it's the the entire yangadero's story that that wells filmed and made there uh is the movie like is the bulk of this this documentary that Richard Wilson okay. put together so the the like half hour, 40 minute, like story of its production is really just kind of like a precursor an introduction to the footage. So really what this is, is that this is a restoration and release of a lost Wells film. And that is incredible. And something That's that interesting I, to you. So. Yeah. A very interesting to me, especially. So, uh, and I, I can safely report that the film as well of the, the younger Daros is, beautiful it's stunning um and it's interesting the kind of the different thing you know how, how very different it was and, and kind of a little transgressive um uh interestingly I, I kind of caught aspects of uh you know it's, it's got some very obvious uh robert flaherty influences he was a famous documentarian of the time uh he, you know stuff like the nook of the north and um you know he partnered with uh Murnau to make taboo in uh, the Polynesian islands and has a lot of those feels to it. Um, and interestingly, uh, one of the original stories uh, of it's all true, the Benito the bull bit was, was a piece uh, bought from 
Flaherty. So I thought that was an interesting connection there to, to see that influence. But, but because of the lack of equipment they had available in South America, they didn't have any sound recording equipment. Uh, so the whole Yangadero story is filmed as a, as a silent uh, mm-hmm. effectively with lots of uh, you know uh, orchestral compositions and sound effects uh, to to enhance it and I think it's it's a really beautiful way of, of expressing their mission without um, you know being uh, literal and, and telling the story exactly and, and so in some ways the preceding context is important to inform what the actual subject of the film is because it's not inform you with like title cards or words or anything like that but the visuals themselves if you just take it at that i think it's, it's a beautiful you know expressionistic vision of their their journey and their mission and even though a lot of it's fabricated and you see that kind of ahead of time there's like a great behind the scenes footage you see in the documentary part where they have the the raft up on a gimbal and wells is up there like throwing buckets of water on the guys as they're you know doing it and 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 so it's like kind of this interesting thing and it reminds me as well later of stuff like for fake where it's like well you say this is true but it's not at all it's like it's all fabricated it's movie magic effectively here uh, and, and just maybe, selling it as truth. Maybe even shades of like a symbiopsychotaxiplasm, which is like a documentary within a documentary happening and commenting on itself uh, yeah. in interesting ways. It's it's a really interesting uh, pro- product, ultimately. Like, it's hard to decipher exactly what it is because, again, right. like, pa- part of me is just like, I would have loved you to produce like a thorough documentary that details the making of it's all true, the circumstances under which it was created, why it didn't work out, you know, because ultimately the film was not released uh, due to a lot of changing in the hierarchy at RKO Mm -hmm. and a lot of confusion and communication uh, and also just shifts in the culture. You know, this happened very beginning of America entering World War II. Uh, They're getting getting footage back from South America. Uh, There's... (laughs) There's a a quote from Wells somewhere basically uh, saying that the, you know, uh, you know, the, the executives are just getting this footage back and all they see is all of these, you know, black people jumping up all around and everything. And uh, they, they weren't crazy about that. Yeah. And uh, he's in the, in the, the Brazilian government also wasn't crazy about, you know, what he was doing because he was out there filming more impoverished areas of, you know, the, the country and uh, showcasing a side that wasn't always, you know, the most flattering um, but it was more honest. It was more real. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of the people involved in that production really appreciated Wells as, as the film, the, like one of the only filmmakers at the time who would have expressed a real, you know, vision of Brazil, you know, right. for the people and filmed the real people there. And that's, a again, that's a the really interesting aspect of what you see in his footage there is that he's able to pull, you know, genuine and moving performances from non-actors uh, and compose something uh, artistic and expressive and, and beautiful uh, that a lot of his other films aren't really like. And it's it's in very much infused with a lot of the South American culture, uh, musically especially. Um, you know, there's a lot of that. And you can see that influence on a lot of later films as well. Like, especially it comes back in stuff like Lady from Shanghai, you know, mm-hmm. that, that interest he has in, in South American culture. And it's uh, and and so to kind of come across this documentary, which I was again aware of as a big Wells fan, but not overly familiar with, to a point where I didn't know that it was like actually the movie. Like I thought it was like I knew that 
Wells's footage existed in this, but I didn't realize it was completed and, and presented. Yeah. yeah, as as that. Um, I, I know there is more footage, uh, just kind of rotting away in UCLA archives. Um, but like it, it, it appears that this is you know a, a fully complete picture of Wells within another project that provides context for why this did not go the way it, it really should and, and was kind of the first real disaster of, of Wells's uh, film career. Learning about more disasters of Wells all the time, it seems. Well, it's interesting. Like once you, you know, uh, there's always more to discover of Wells as we've learned, even the films that we thought we'd never see are existing and coming out. And, and look, you know, here was one, you know, 30 years before that already came out uh, for us to view. But, you know, af after you watch everything that he, he made and released, um, you know, there's still stuff that he made that is out there that he, he didn't get to release or finish. So many, so many projects. And even just the prospects of some of them, like his, his King Lear adaptation that he was mm -hmm. working on close to death. Uh, they just sound like the most fascinating things. And, and everything just, again, proves his, his genius and his singularity as an artist uh you know at, at the time and the enduring ability of his work again like if this was all kind of like the the, the whole production of it's all true was made without a script you know there was no plan going in he was just flown down to south america uh, you know with like less than a week's notice to go film carnival and whatever else he could and, and figure out from there which again was also part of the reason that the new you know people in charge at rko pulled it because it's like what the what the fuck is this guy doing down there he doesn't have a script he's just shooting things you know what the hell's going on mm -hmm. um but yeah uh, but what he produced was still you know so singular and beautiful and incredible um and the fact that it's preserved in this documentary is an incredible achievement and, and something to behold and, and something I was very excited to, to discover and share. Well, that's a fantastic report on that. And uh, what, what's the name of the documentary again? It's the called, the movie? it's called, it's all true. Yeah. It's all true. <laughs> it's all true is uh, from, from 93, I believe it is. And uh, I know there's a DVD out there of it. You can find, I watch it on canopy. If anyone has that, if you're interested in seeing, it's a uh, well worth look, you know, checking out. It's it's definitely, I think, one of the best, you know, w works of preservation for a documentary that I that I can recall. Because again, it's 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 such an integral piece for just what it achieves in that sense. Even if the the documentary and the historic aspect of it itself le leaves something to be desired. Well, the, we're recovering. We're covering recovery in a few ways this week. We have the Bourdain thing. Um, I could tell my story, and we have uh, the last weekend after that. Yeah, should we should we take a break and come back and and get into that then? Yeah, uh, yeah. Should just take a few minutes, and uh, it's a another emotional journey. So this one, yeah. Uh, if you thought the Bourdain stuff was hard, this is going to be another whammy of that. So take a second to grab your tissue boxes, people. <laughs> When you feel like pain worth living You got to stand up and take a look around You look up way to the sky high And when your deepest thoughts are broken I know you know you keep on dreaming more And when you stop you know you're gonna die And right now I don't wanna die And now we all play parts of tomorrow Oh no, 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 no
okay, I guess I guess to uh, kind of set the stage, uh, Lost Weekend by uh, Billy Wilder here is our film of the week, but there's a little bit of context going into it here, personal side of things informed by Calvin's history um, that, that I think helps give the film a little more impact and, and credence and perspective that, that um, let me just hear about. He's talked about it before. Uh, there's a number of very personally written uh, pieces on the website that uh, inform Calvin's history with uh, substance abuse and addiction, uh, that he has done a miraculous job overcoming and conquering to be here today. And uh, he wants to, to share that story more, more so, in even more detail here to kind of give a better idea of what something like The Lost Weekend uh, achieves and you know resonates with. I think it's important to finally be able to just tell my, my full story, I guess, on the show. Uh, I don't even know that you've necessarily told me, certainly not in such a kind of candid manner, it just kind of yeah. comes in, in pieces in, in a way. So I've been in, interested to see and hear, of course. So, uh, as of today, I have 1,690 days off drugs and alcohol, which is over 4.5 years, uh, which is an astounding uh, amount of time. I know that every day is really special and uh, means something to me now because I've realized what it's like not to have days. Um, for 16 years, I don't think I had a day where I didn't use drugs and alcohol. So a whole 4.5 years, it's it's a whole different life now in a really meaningful way. Um, I, I started doing like drugs and alcohol when I was very young, like at 13 or 14, I was already just starting and experimenting with things. Um, I think I used it initially to help with creativity. I wanted to help with my writing. I thought amphetamines would especially help. Um, and I was reading a lot of Hemingway and stuff and I realized that the alcoholics were the good writers. And I realized that alcohol would be a good venue for me to really explore some things and to really live. I thought I should always live very hard and on the edge if I wanted to really understand life and understand what my limitations were. So I, I don't think everyone really has that switch. I don't think you have that switch where you need to kind of self-destruct to find yourself in any way. Uh, I, I can safely say I've, I've never had that inkling or desire or mindset that, that I needed to push myself in such a manner. I found out something very scary when I started doing it is that I couldn't not do it. I, I realized that I, whatever initial inclination I had to use drugs, I I didn't have a stop switch. I don't have the normal ability to uh, kind of meter my use. I, I don't have an ability to go have one beer. Um, I have to go the entire day. I got to a point eventually where I was waking up and starting with vodka at about 5 a.m. Um, my whole life was just based on alcohol. Every decision I made was based on how I could get alcohol and where I could drink. Um, I wouldn't go anywhere where there wasn't a viable choice of alcohol i'd go to work with alcohol in my backpack and i'd i mean i wouldn't i couldn't exist i felt a crushing sense of fatalism about about what would happen if i stopped doing it i knew it would end very ugly i knew there was no way that any of my relationships were going to end in a healthy way i thought i knew everything i was doing was going to lead down a destructive path i think we got there with ordained too and that's where I heard my own addiction um, when he said that you know his relationship with Argento was going to be his destruction I knew that was me and cocaine I knew that was me and alcohol 
I knew that was me and Xanax. I should say those were my primary things. Um, I used amphetamine for many years just to, to motivate writing and not sleep. There was a, I remember doing like 250 milligrams of amphetamine. I think 60 is a high dose. <laughs> so I didn't sleep for a whole week. And I remember that being my first point of no control over what I was doing. Um, I remember seeing like pink elephants, like, like through my eyes and realizing that they were in the room with me and realizing like a complete hallucination. I saw, you know, things that nobody should really see. Uh, and everything's really heightened on amphetamines. I think I needed the heightenedness because I couldn't deal with uh, how I felt normally. So I think a lot of the use was just, just to maintain at some point. There was very little joy the last five or six years. I didn't get any pleasure out of alcohol, although I constantly used it. And it was the only thing that I could do. Um, I, I got far less joy out of not doing anything. Um, I just couldn't. I, like I said, I woke up and started with vodka and drank the entire day. There was not a point where I was able to stop. I didn't have a switch anymore. Um, I said for years I was just like a heavy drinker, but I think the reality was I just couldn't stop um, by my own volition. So once Jess was pregnant with Ezra and uh, she was able to give it up so quickly, I realized I couldn't. And it was the most devastating thing for me. Um, as we rounded the corner getting to her birth, I was about to go into treatment and uh, she came a month early. So uh, the next day I was, I was supposed to go into a detox, but, um, but Ezra arrived a little bit early um, and I was already drunk. Um, I was already drinking throughout that day. So I experienced the, the birth of my child completely wasted, <laughs> which is really hard for me. Um, it's hard for me to imagine because I packed up the, the hospital bags. Uh, I packed, I packed it up with the, with whiskey. Um, I, I took a bunch of whiskey to the hospital. It's very hard for me to imagine. I was, I was with her the whole night before she was born, just doing shots because I couldn't manage my own anxiety anymore. And just to have wasted that, that most precious moment in my entire life and not to have felt it genuinely, but through like the filter of, you know, a whole bottle of, of whiskey, just like that whole stay. Uh, it, it's so distorted. Um, and I feel like, of course, the nurses and everyone must have known at some point, I'm sure they could smell like all the whiskey they, after she was born, they'd like come into her room and, and I think someone eventually commented on it that I just couldn't drink there. Um, and I woke up at one point and became kind of hostile to like the nurses there. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm so far gone that I can't even monitor myself, even for the birth of my child, I, I can't prevent myself from stopping. So I knew right away that something had to change, that there had to be some big change. I don't think people are allowed just to be drinking in a hospital in any setting. Um, I don't think you're supposed to bring whiskey into a, like a high emergency situation because uh, Ezra was on NICU for like a whole week, right? And there's, there's just a lot at stake there. And so just like knowing that I don't feel like I endangered her, but potentially to be in that situation where I'm endangering our family in a way and where there probably should be like social workers being like, okay, we need to go do something right now. Uh, realizing that I realized that I had to go into 
a detox as soon as I possibly could. And I feel so bad. I, you know, she spent the whole week at the hospital. I went home after three days and I went straight to the bar. I didn't like go home and clean up. All I could do is go to the bar. I wanted to tell everyone about the new baby and, but it was absurd because she was still there. And this is the kind of thing that alcohol does. Even the most important thing in the world to you, you can't get around it. You, you just have to go, you go, you have to go fill that void anyway. Um, it becomes the most important thing. It becomes more important than your daughter or your wife or any suffering that's happening outside yourself. And it was so hard when, when Ezra came home, I knew our situation was so bad. I knew our, our place was so horrible. Like I was just like smoking, like inside the apartment because I was always too drunk to leave and go outside. I didn't want people to know about, you know, how afflicted I was. I didn't want the apartment manager to see all that. And just everything was a mess and, in horrible condition and just bringing a kid into that. I just woke up the next day or two after she got home and I'm like, fuck, we have to do something now. This is devastating to bring a kid up in this environment. That's everything's yellowed from like years of nicotine and stuff. And all our clothes are gross. And it's just, it was a nasty scene. There's like a hole in the ceiling with like water dripping down. Uh, I just couldn't deal with anything like that. I didn't want to invite anyone into my apartment because there was also alcohol all over the place, just like cans and everything. Just like a, it looked like a, it looked like a drug den, right? I mean, effectively that was it. And I feel like for years I wasn't like honest with Jess and like honest in my relationships and I was doing anything I could just to use. And so it was a hard choice, but like around the time of the last election, when, when Trump was going in, um, that's around when I went to the hospital, November 8th, which was uh, effectively the, you know, the time of the election I went in and said, I have to change something. I have to make a change. And they put me on a bunch of drugs. Um, unfortunately, I was coming off both alcohol and Xanax, which is a horrible, horrible combination. Um, you shouldn't use those if you want to stay alive anyway. Um, so that's a very dangerous detox. Alcohol and Xanax are, and uh, sometimes heroin are uh, the hardest detoxes to get through. So combining these things into one really made it dangerous. They gave me drugs that I didn't uh, interact well with. There's kind of like a foggy week at the hospital there before November 8th. And then finally um, something happens. I start catching blood within my throat. I start asphyxiating. I can no longer breathe. Uh, the My brain's no longer receiving oxygen. Uh, so they um, decided to incubate me, put me under, um, which was a heroic procedure for the hospital, not something they were really used to doing. They had to create new methods of transferring someone between hospitals within an ECMO. And that ECMO is just something creating oxygen through my brain. It went through, I still have like mild scarring around my neck of where all the tubes were. I had about 12 tubes through my throat. Um, so they had to create new ways to do that. And I got to say like the doctors really became my heroes in some way. They, they really led us through the most difficult time. They told my family I had about 2% chance to live. And I, I slipped away possibly a few times. Uh, so for me to realize that I've died several times as a consequence of my addiction, when I woke up, I, I thought something probably had to change. Uh, it took me about a week to learn to walk again. Uh, once you've not, it's, Think about like sitting on your legs for like a couple hours and you have like the dead legs. But what if you just hadn't used them for a month and a half? I had to learn how to walk again. So uh, a lot of dehumanizing stuff, like I needed people to get to the restroom and there weren't always nurses there. So 
very difficult, very difficult situation. And you realize your own, you realize how badly it could go at some point. I, I wasn't able to talk either. So not being able to walk and talk, it's really hard to signal for attention. Um, so a lot of really difficult stuff and really felt myself at my all time low. But then also once I got like the metal tube out of my throat and I was able to like have like a gravelly voice just saying anything, I was asking my wife to get alcohol. Uh, that was like one of my first choices. I was asking her if she could get alcohol for New Year's because I didn't want to be sober in the situation. Um, but it was a slow detox and the, the doctor slowly got me off stuff and it was a miraculous procedure anyway. Very few people have survived like that whole circumstance combined um, I realized I had a lot more to do. I, I ended up, uh, once I could walk and everything and I was stabilized and coming off a bunch of the medicine, I was able to go to Utah for about 55 days for rehab. Um, very difficult for me because I, I felt like I was physically behind a lot of people. I didn't have any physical strength still. Uh, so it was a real battle for me getting into rehab and trying to feel out how I could possibly survive like these other people did where it just seemed like some of them had like you know the start of an alcohol problem I had been to several rehab situations before I've tried it before I did a whole year in New Mexico worked on a ranch and in the library there and um, at that point I was still using amphetamine so it wasn't like I was solving my problems they just gave me the amphetamine and agreed that it was a medical concern I don't think I made enough of a deal out of how I abused amphetamine um, so it's a long story and I feel like what I got out of Utah is I figured out I could help people in a different way that my goal in life could be that I could really help someone else that I could get outside myself even when I was deepest in my addiction I just said that I wanted to help people and uh, become someone that I would have admired that I I wanted to help people with anxiety because while I was in the worst throes of addiction, I couldn't find anyone to help me. I'd call like the, the toll lines. I'd say, I, I can't do anything. I'm going to die. And they wouldn't, you know, they're like, a, well, are you going to hurt someone or yourself? I'm like, no. And they said, well, there's nothing we could really do for you. So I, I always knew that what I really needed was uh, recovery. And I didn't know that, right. I didn't know that the meetings would solve that feeling. I didn't know that there was a system of support that's completely free out there. So I came back from Utah, started my own like cocaine anonymous meetings, got hooked up with a really good sponsor and went through the whole program and uh, very grateful for it. Uh, I had initial reservations about like finding God and like all the God in the text. And um, I told them that Satan would be my God. <laughs> I, I, I said things to make them mad. And um, I think that's a very alcoholic thing to do is to, to have that resistance and to uh, try to make other people seem like the problem. Um, I think a lot of it's just taking accountability, realizing what you've done and then um, kind of making good on all of it, trying to contact people that you've hurt in the past and then lead them through it uh, and writing, you know, a, a whole list, a whole inventory of yourself and finding out what you've done to other people and uh, how you could really remedy that and how you could become a whole person again. Uh, that's that's most of the story. I spent a whole another year in a sober living facility when I got home from Utah. I, I lived in the sober living facility like on Alki Beach, which was beautiful, but uh, I also went to a, a inpatient rehab for a whole year while I was back. So it's a whole process getting back. I, I feel for people that just have to go in and, and do the, the stint and then go back to life. An incredible story to hear still, Calvin. Uh, 
even you know over the bits and pieces of road over lost times and hearing the new parts here as well um god it's it's really <laughs> it's such a hard thing to to kind of wrap your mind around if it's not something you've really had like a encounter with before and it's 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 heart-wrenching to hear the the absolute you know uh trial uh, of, of this whole ordeal and the the fortitude it takes to to come out and the the blessing of the resources you had at, at your hands here you know because you know not everyone has those uh yeah. tool sets to to really help themselves and it is and, and that's the problem is that it's not something that you can really overcome by yourself no. or or even with you know a, a few close people or you really need all manner of, of, of tools and, and you, assistance and you direction i think you literally need a whole team i think what you begin to realize it's it's a whole family disease too you realize that your parents you know either put you in that place or have it enabled you i mean there's only two options there of what your parents have in it and what your partner has in it and um, I mean, they need Al-Anon too. They need support in the same way you do. And I feel for people that are in it themselves or their family won't even engage with therapies. Of course, it's all free. And that's the beautiful thing is that if you really want to do this and you really want to go find that stuff, you could find meetings the entire day and find even a better situation than I did with the with a, a privileged position. Um, you could spend the entire day going to meetings and finding recovery resources. And there are plenty of helps out there. So uh, the good thing is, is, it's accessible to anyone and it, it never says no. Uh, so that's the beauty of the program. But uh, I think like uh, for me, just having like that intensive living situation based around recovery was very helpful. And uh, there, there are other ones for, for people in like lower income or people that need more assistance. And I hope anyone that hears it or, or wants to find help is able to, because there are a lot of means to do that too. Well, that's the important first step, right, is to recognize the, the problem and have the will and the desire to change, even when it's the most impossible seeming thing in the world. And and that recognition, you know, even if it's so late into the, the, the throes of it, and so, you know, obviously, you know, far down the path of, you know, the, the, the hole that you have to then climb out of, just to recognize that you need to take steps to to amend that situation that itself is, you know, a, a heroic first step into, you know, healing yourself and to, to overcoming this, this insurmountable obstacle, for, you know, for a lot of people, it's the hardest one for the first three months. I was just saying, I did believe it. And I was saying I admitted it, but I was like, when do I actually admit it? When do I get that same salvation I'm seeing from other people's faces? Or That's a lot of like the step work is God, when do I fucking get what they have? And it's a, uh, it's miserable for, for many years. I'd say the first three years were like full of constant misery and like uh, suffering to be like everyone else in the program and to be as far along as they were and not to think of alcohol constantly. Um, like yesterday, I could just like walk into a bar and have no feeling. I mean, pick up an order for someone for Uber and get out of the bar. And I didn't think about alcohol. That's, uh, and that's an amazing trajectory of recovery. Right. I, I have to say that, you know, I, I know occasionally you talk about how sometimes it's still hard and, you know, I imagine that feeling will ne never necessarily go away, but the, the control you have over it now and the ability to, to enter those spaces and know that you have grown and overcome so much of these difficulties in, in a relatively short time period as well, less than five years. Uh, it's, it's an amazing recovery story, particularly when your chances appeared 
so low. I think people also treat recovery like it has to be an ongoing daily process, but I mean, I'd like to say that I'm recovered. I, I'd like to use that language. I think a, a lot of the alcoholism texts kind of implies that you're never going to recover. And I think that's not hopeful enough for the people that get into it. That's why I drifted to, toward things like Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, there's Refuge Recovery, which is more of like a Buddhist meditative one. So I align more with alternatives. And if you feel that like text is a little bit too harsh and that uh, the God stuff is too heavy, there are hundreds of alternatives. Uh, very mm -hmm. lucky to be in Seattle, by the way. I know if I lived some places, I wouldn't have the same opportunities and same alternatives. Uh, I know a lot of the parts of the country, like even where like AA started in Ohio, I'm sure there's like a, I'm sure it's pretty thin. What else do you get there? But uh, like Cocaine Anonymous started in LA, just some Hollywood guys who really had a cocaine problem and didn't like the original text, but had some foundations from AA. So I'm very grateful for that program. Um, I know it's helped a ton of people in a different way. Uh, and I like the... Uh, I like recovery to be holistic too. Sometimes I went into AA meetings and I was like, man, they're really focused on that alcohol. Uh, I think, I think recovery should cover everything. Mm -hmm. Well, because it is uh, the, the disease that you're treating is not alcoholism. It's addiction. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a broader yeah. uh, mental, you know, uh, effect that, you know, plagues and is, um, you know, uh, consuming itself, you know, effectively. It's, it's not something that you can just cut yourself away from entirely. It's, it's a, it's a mental obstacle, mental, uh, I don't want to say defect, but there, there's obviously a, a corruption there that is, uh, you know, it's a challenge to, to overcome and fix and trying to tackle it as this, this item of vice is yeah. not, is, is not the the proper address it's <laughs> not agree. fixing the problem you're you're addressing the the aftermath and not the the root of the issue there so i think alcoholics anonymous specifically has some some issues that i i had to get around but i i think having an all-encompassing solution where i did the aa the ca the na the refuge and everything else um, there's also options like smart recovery which is for like people who can't help but intellectualize all of this stuff I, I like that intellectual approach based on science and rational too. Uh, it's just, you have to find the right host for that and someone that's really engaging with it. But I, I'm just very grateful. And my whole mission now is to help other people when I'm not working on the website, I'm trying to help someone. So that's, that's what I do in my life that I don't really express on the show is I spend my whole life looking for opportunities to help other people. Um, and that's, that's all I'm about really. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you're always so candid and forward about this and have been since the beginning, since I've known you, um, you know, it shows that, that you have a real awareness and, you know, you, you've taken so many strides to, to overcome and understand this, this uh, issue, this stage in your life and your ability to, to talk about it so openly, I think is a, is a healing practice that helps you with your yeah. outreach as well and your ability to connect and recognize that, you know, with the, with the right resources and persistence that people can overcome this. And, and again, the, the flexibility with which you address the various approaches that people have and the, the multitude of resources, you know, proves that there's not really one direct Solution. answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you there's know, it, 
it's a it's a complex problem and it varies from individual to individual and you know like how deep it goes or how it's addressed and how someone will respond and so of course we need an, an endless array of options to to address and help people with it and if one doesn't work sometimes you need five or ten or you know 20 outlets to to see it to pull whatever resources you can from each to to suit what what healing you need I think I should probably have as many resources as, as I use drugs, right? Like if I had six or seven choice drugs, I should have six or seven resources. So that's the approach I've taken to it. And there's so many more opportunities to help people in, in other programs. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just very grateful every day for my recovery. And I realize that every day is a gift now that I, that wasn't guaranteed to me. Um, there was a lot of darkness in that coma and a lot of shit that I really saw, which, uh, it's hard to really fold into a recovery story like that, but I, I really, um, I had like visuals of floating down like a river of darkness and um, very Joseph Conrad, heart of darkness stories in my mind that were kind of playing out. And I saw every person that I ever knew and uh, it, it went up a river. It was very strange that it went up, like it was going up to a heaven or something, but uh, it was very interpersonal. There were, it was like a beach in Hawaii and then like this hockey arena. And I, I thought I was like under the refrigeration of a hockey arena, which must have just been me in the coma, right? Like the, the breathalyzer machine. It's like all these loose associations. And then I went to the most perfect place I could think of, which was a uh, black and white Paris. Everyone I knew was in black and white and we were in Paris and having coffee and it was the best thing. And I told my parents that I love them. And then it snapped into like this spherical Detroit where I couldn't outrun like the police or something. I, I had a lot of trouble with police throughout my life um, and, and like authority figures. And there was this, this pressing thing where I kept finding heroin and it was a nightmarish Detroit. And there was this laughing sphere, which was a devil. And it was like laughing inwardly at me. Um, it's just the darkest thing I can imagine. I can't, I can't even put into words exactly how dark those images were or how cutting and how I can't quite shake them, how I still wake up with night terrors all the time. And I wake up sweating. Um, the first year I woke up wondering if I was alive. Uh, I, I just can't put into words how difficult and how much sweat and, and shakes that really took to really get out of. Uh, and I can't really say... I, I mean, going through a coma will always affect someone for the rest of their lives, I think, uh, for that long of a stretch, just what it did to my family and to my relationships. But I've been able to get them all back together and closer than I've ever been. So with a lot of gratitude, I look at the coma and think what a what a great thing to have gone through. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an amazing story still. And every time you tell it, I think there's more to be taken from and more for, for us to learn from your experiences and to, to comprehend and understand. Because for, for people who haven't been through that experience in any, you know, comparable kind of way, it's it's very difficult to imagine. And I yeah. think I think sometimes that makes it harder for certain people to to sympathize because they, they literally just can't comprehend the the, the difficulty and the, the nightmare and the desperation of it all. And, For a lot uh, of people, I think they, they view addiction as a choice too, right? Yeah. I think initially, of course, you choose to pick up a drug. Eventually, I didn't have a choice. Um, oh, yeah. They, they don't understand the, the concept and the disease of right. 
addiction and how it feeds into it and how that is the the true evil of it and not the 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 person who imbibes you know uh obviously there are abusers who who freely take in that yeah but at, at the heart of it still there is something that is provoking them to that that needs to be addressed it's not you know the, those kind of evil you know fuels are not inherent to people right you know uh there's something motivating that whether it's an external factor or it's something you know m- mentally or, or deeply seated you know and it's and it's very difficult to find ways to comprehend and understand that but I think through stories like your own and and others uh, that we see, we've we as a society have come to understand it obviously so much more, which is why the resources we have available to treat them are so much more abundant and appreciated. But obviously, there's long stretches of time in history where it just it it wasn't seen like that and it wasn't treated seriously, and it was you know obviously you know looked down upon or mocked even you know alcoholics used to be the the, the butt of the joke right. in, in media and sometimes still are still but are, yeah. like but but depiction of uh, alcoholism and addiction as a serious issue was um you know kind of taboo for a long time it's one of those things that society wanted to just kind of bury and forget about i think for me i'm eventually going to write my whole story right like there's so much more that i've left out here but i'm very grateful for an opportunity and platform to be able to share that in a way that i would in a AA meeting which is very atypical of me to share it anywhere else uh but but i'm very grateful that we get to do it on this show suddenly i'm above the ordinary i'm competent supremely competent i'm walking a tightrope over niagara falls i am one of the great ones i'm michelangelo molding the beard of moses i'm van gogh painting pure sunlight i'm horowitz playing the Emperor Concerto. I'm John Barrymore before the movies got him by the throat. I'm Jesse James and his two brothers, all three of them. I'm W. Shakespeare. And out there, it's not Third Avenue any longer, it's the Nile, Ned. The Nile, and down it was the barge of Cleopatra. Kimmy. Purple the sails and soul perfumed that the winds were lipsing with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke. Yeah, we're learning a lot from like the literature of recovery. And uh, today we have the adaptation of Charles Jackson's story. Uh, he wrote it uh, as a book originally. And it's what, considered like one of the primary texts for the alcoholic literature. And then, uh, of course, Billy Wilder, one of our favorite uh, screenwriters on the show. Uh, most importantly, it's a Billy Wilder movie. You know, it's, it's Billy Wilder's birthday today. Is it? It that's, is. That's great timing. Yeah, that was well, totally age fun. well in a few days. But yeah. <laughs> well, when we recorded it, it was his yeah. birthday, and that was that was a happy coincidence. Uh, we were we were kind of building to this. Um, I'll I'll say that we've been circling Lost Weekend for a long time because oh, yeah. a we both love Billy Wilder. B this one has very personal connection for you, and you have a lot of enthusiasm for it, and a lot of context you can bring into it. And C. Uh, I watched a couple of Ray Milan movies I liked recently and I wanted to rewatch Lost Weekend because of it. So okay. that's how we got here. <laughs> um, I experienced it first in a rehab, actually. They they showed it uh, just to show like the earliest take of what uh, recovery movies looked like in a popular way. Um, and this was a, a Best Picture winner. Uh, it does have prestige and uh, historical precedent for why we would cover it too. 
Yeah, it's a it's a significant. It was Wilder's first Oscar wins. He, I believe, it was a it was the first triple one he won for writing, directing, and picture. I think and it got like seven whole nominations or something. Something like that. Milan also won for actor, deservedly so. He's brilliant in here. Um, and yeah, it was it was one of the biggest movies in 1945. Uh, it was a huge prestige picture, um, you know, and I think still holds up as such. It's not like one of those, um, you know, kind of like. Uh, observational like like dramas of of the time or capitalizing on a you know societal calamity or whatever and you know that kind of doesn't age well because it is a perennial issue right and i think the way in which it tackles alcoholism uh is, is very sobering is very you know it, it really brings to attention the you know the histrionic issues of of it and how desperate it, it can be uh in its many different forms you know uh, i think at first it kind of you know smartly it plays it more uh comically in in a way that that wilder is like i was like oh isn't it kind of humorous that he's hanging bottles off the side to kind of Mm -hmm. fuel his addiction like there's these the 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 cleverness of of milan's character outwitting everyone there's a there's a little bit of a humor to it but that humor it's a it's a dark humor it underscores you know, the, the desperation that he's, you know, and and the many hoops he's going through, like these machinations he has just to fuel his addiction. He buys two bottles so that he can let one get discovered by his brother. And so he thinks that he's, you know, gotten it, but so he still has the other one left to actually fuel his addiction with when, when you, you know, again, it's, it's, it's kind of like humorous on, on a surface, but also like it's, it's backed by the, the seriousness of the issue at hand. I think I think that even my wife knew pretty full well. Of course, she experienced a lot of my drinking, and I'd still hide, uh, I'd still hide alcohol throughout the place, <laughs> so that if any of it went missing, I, I'd still have at least six more places where I could find it. So I'm very familiar with like a lot of the techniques and the ways that uh, alcoholics like. For me, it's so significantly impressive because alcoholics anonymous okay the uh, science of recovery had only been around for like 10 years in a, like a formative way uh, at mm-hmm. least our like popularized western take on how to do recovery had only significantly been around for 10 years and this uses a lot of the language of what alcoholics anonymous has been about um, as we discussed it, it's not like a program that's changed radically a lot of the god languages in there and so still the initial text still matches basically where they were at in 1935 when it was just a group of a hundred alcoholics who got into a room together and uh, realized that like helping each other was the only way to overcome addiction. Nothing's really changed in that program. So um, the, the way that they practice it then is the same as now. I, that's why we need the alternatives, but it's incredible that the last weekend's there, that it, it understands it, that it's like an early proponent for all of that thinking. And it doesn't have any outdated thinking particularly. I think that's really incredible, at least in terms of recovery. Yeah, I can't think of anything about it that really seems like off base or like a, a bad right. reading of, uh, you know, alcoholism. It feels modern still in the sense of the, how it treats it. And, uh, you know, again, sometimes it might be like o- overly dramatized, but also at the same time, like <laughs> not like the, the sequence where Milan is seeing like the bad and, and the, the, the mice in the wall, right. like, and he's screaming like bloody murder like it's like that that seems a little over the top but 
it's it's not it's also a very genuine portrait that's how bad it it can really be like it, you heard my story about the pink elephants i saw within the room i mean it's yeah not, it's, they, not. it's funny <laughs> I thought they, they there's a line specifically where they say oh there isn't any pink elephants it's not like that but if you're you know obviously there is some context that informs that and that idea of uh, that you know exists prior to this and, and your own account of it as well certainly informs it's crazy that i think i don't think it's that outlandish and i think it's very big in the way it portrays some of the things especially the way that it's emphasized by the score i think it, it goes a little bit big with some of its ideas a little bit bigger than it can contain but um the, I think the, the score accurate. is probably like the score is probably like the one thing i think is a little too much like it's too too insistent too hyperbolic in, in yeah. some ways it's like it could go if, by if, half and it would be effective I think. yeah i like some things like the there's you know the theremin is kind of used throughout to kind of right. underscore the use of alcoholism and the kind of the haunting effects of it and that's really nice i um, do like the theremin it could have just been that i think in, yeah, in, a, in a lot of ways but yeah it's the the score often comes in like in in kind of blares out a lot of things like uh the the sequence in the the recovery ward or whatever it right. is where the guy is, is like freaking the hell out uh i think that moment would be even more terrifying if you kind of took the score out or toned it down a lot more because you've got two elements of you know overly you know uh you know exaggerated or not even exaggerated just kind of like very erratic um you know behavior going on here in both the characters who's you know experiencing the you know the dts the the trauma there and the score at the same time trying to echo that and just being kind of way too much in a lot of ways so if you toned one down that's that's probably the only like big chief issue i have with the film but it's it's trying to do that and, and i and i did read elsewhere that like at first people didn't respond well to it with like a temp score so yeah. uh like obviously at the time it made sense to then have this one because it, it works worked for audiences at the time but now now it feels a little too much to me it is a lot um i think uh the initial response to the movie must have been super interesting anyway i don't think it was initially beloved um, i know uh especially the alcohol companies were trying to get paramount not to put this out and um, even some of the communities that were for temperance were saying, uh, maybe don't put this out because there's so much alcohol in it. Uh, I think the issues um, socially were way behind where Alcoholics Anonymous was back then. Well, that, they, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to consider yeah. as well, that this movie comes like 20 years, 25 years after Prohibition, uh, right. you know, was in like, not so not even, I guess that's like less than 15 years after Prohibition was uninstated. You know, and so you're already then back to depicting alcohol as this, you know, uh, insurmountable evil. It's really brave. <laughs> Just that it, it's able to do all of that and actually release against the interests of like the alcohol industry, which has been booming post, uh, you know, um, post speakeasies and uh, post prohibition and just that it has a new voice in that uh, based on this literature that is also a really significant text. I've read as well that uh, Wilder was inspired by, by the story. Uh, he, he was, you know, kind of saw it as an outlet to understand alcoholics after his encounter with Raymond Chandler the previous year, writing, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, writing Double Indemnity together. <laughs> I, I believe so. But that also sounds like something Wilder would just say, you know, <laughs> 
Because, like, similarly, he said, like, um, you know, the the alcohol industry yeah. like offered to buy the film for five million. He's like, I would have taken it and burned it myself if they offered it to me. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's obviously like a very cheeky Wilder thing to say. So, uh, <laughs> but but I think there's probably some truth to the to the Chandler thing because uh, he was a heavy alcoholic for sure. It's just a great shot at Chandler. <laughs> yeah, they didn't get along very well. <laughs> so I guess the the last time I saw this, I, I was extremely high on it, as I still am. I still think it's the most significant um, portrayal of this that there is. Uh, I know there's a lot of other alcohol or like uh, addiction themed films that yeah, you have like a harder time three watching. Yeah. Uh, and and I could see why because they you know the they feel the need or they go in the direction of displaying it uh in in a way that that could be triggering or a way that uh you could almost accuse some of them of romanticizing uh, uh, abuse in some ways i think i think it's hard not to i think uh, the reason we or alcoholics use alcohol is for romantic reasons initially like him sitting at the bar and suddenly he's able to speak in bon mots. He's able to come up with the most clever ideas. He can write better. I mean, we use them romantically because they, they solve a problem for us we can't solve. Well, one of the great things I think about Lost Weekend is that he says that he, you know, like he's looking for a drink or whatever because it right. helps him write. Kind of like you you uh, express as well. But at, at no point do we see him write anything. <laughs> that and was also fact, my truth too. Yeah. yeah and, and in fact, when he, and he attempts to sit down and write he immediately goes out and looks for another drink yeah. to, to try and motivate him. He, he rips the apartment apart to try and find the bottle he, he hid away. And well, he, think... we, we never see him actually achieving anything successful. We, we see no merit of his success prior to this. In fact, he's right. not a successful writer. Uh, we just know that yeah. he has talent that people can recognize, but he's not able to manifest it. Like his brother's been covering him for a long time here. I mean, he's not really self-sufficient in any way. And his alcoholism hasn't produced any great writing, which is kind of how it went for me. I, the, I think initially you start using it and there's a creative spark and then slowly it recedes until you've eaten away all of your talent and ability to create. But I write so a, much more now than I did on alcohol. Mm-hmm. There is a danger to romanticizing figures like Hemingway, who you know we yeah. kind of see as this genius writer because of his alcoholism. And you know that obviously... Uh, leads people down to you know like like dangerous and destructive paths because we link the two inherently even though uh, I think obviously one does not inform the the other but that's how we felt and same thing with even like Chandler you know I mentioned Chandler as well we talk about him as a big booze hound we're like oh yes everyone who's a heavy drinker you know they're that makes them great writers and it's it's not if I, I guess if anything it's the other way around is that the the things that make them great their their problems you know are, are more the the drive and you don't want to feel that that's not a reason to be uh, a writer you, you don't go seeking problems so that you can be an artist that's right. that's a dangerous mindset and is not going to achieve the desired the, result the problems are going to find you anyway life's fucking hard so. the, 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 there there are far more miserable failed people out there with a host of problems who aren't writing good books right then yeah. there are people who you know achieve them because of that and the reason we don't know about them is because they're not famous writers then. right <laughs> i think that i think we've done a good job at mediating the influence of someone like bukowski we've been able to like put him away in a box that um that we can't quite with hemingway because of hemingway's influence but yeah but there are these kind of male writers that have like just idolized 
this like toxic, awful lifestyle. And I've seen friends follow that Bukowski and Hemingway path. Um, I know several of my drinking friends must have like Hemingway quotes about how alcohol is the, you know, the only solvent for life's problems. Uh, that must be their Facebook profile. That must be their motto in life. And uh, I think Bukowski more than anyone like represented that bar fly persona and just a constant alcohol, the way that I drink. I don't think any of the authors that we actually think are using drugs drink the way that I did, like Bukowski did. Oh, and, and you got others like Hunter S. Thompson and William right. Burroughs <laughs> yeah. who, who are revered and they're, you know, because their abuse specifically is reflected in their writing. And, mm. and we view that as a kind of uh, a genius and success of their legacy. And It and, still might be. Yeah, yeah, and there's obviously a value in that, but it's important not to like romanticize and adulate that right. aspect of them like they're you know they're not examples you know it's <laughs> uh, i i don't think that you know we you know we should uh, admire their abuse but rather the the results that that came of it and particularly the perspective it gives to abuse through their their writing and expression uh you know again it's it's not a an art that you should like have gone out and pursued if nobody else had made it prior to then i don't i guess i don't know if there's anywhere quite like seattle was in the 90s and it's and it's adulation for these guys who were yeah. killing themselves on drugs and the obviously romanticism. yeah, yeah. especially I mean, with like Nir, Nir, you know nirvana obviously being a worldwide sensation you know and yeah the act after effects of uh cobain obviously that had a again it just further cements this idea that the suffering drug addicted you know uh, artist you know and and what a uh what a bastion of uh creativity they are for the world it's, it's a dangerous mentality that's continually perpetuated it started that way with grunge right like andrew wood and mother love bone and immediately he died from the heroin and then we had like shannon hoon with the blind melon and he died from the heroin and then we had uh kurt cobain and of course he died from the suicide and then we had lane staley die from the heroin and then we had chris cornell die from the suicide it's like where's my city of heroes that i had when i was 10 right and, and you can uh, you can trace it back further to others like you know of uh, significant you know jazz artists of the oh, 1950s of and 60s who also had major heroin abuse issues i just mean like Miles where, davis yeah <laughs> where's this one place in this one era where right I, where all of my messaging was, these are your heroes, oh, yeah. they're all going to die. Particularly how it affected and informed you, especially in yeah. that Tyra growing up, like it was it was obviously the the thing that was being projected at the time. And all my heroes died before they were 26. I always said to everyone, I wouldn't live till I was 30. That was my goal. I mean, it wasn't like my goal to survive longer than them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, and... I guess getting back to Lost Weekend, I think that's one of the beautiful things in its portrayal is that it doesn't romanticize that. It doesn't indicate to us that this is in any way a productive thing for the character. It it doesn't produce any significant results for him. I mean, the bartender is mad. I mean, the guy making money off his disease is pretty angry about. Well, that's and that's the other thing I think is that the film does a really good job of showing the the culpability of the people around him. You know. He says it's it's the morning, you know, it's it's the morning you shouldn't be drinking as he's pouring him another shot and he right. keeps feeding him drinks and covering for him. He lies to his you know family members and friends saying he wasn't there. Uh, all the while like like condemning him but still endorsing his actions all the while and refusing to you know turn him down. 
and you know the same thing with the with the other people around him is you know some of his his friends even the ones who help him you know their their efforts only necessarily extend so far and they start to create a disdain for him eventually you can't help someone until they want to help themselves so I mean, yeah. there's there has to be that point where he's gone low enough and um they kind of hold him up for too long so he can't get that low um in some way you just have to let people go and let them suffer right away and find it for themselves. It's hard. It's hard to know that balance with people you love though. Well, yeah. And, and hope that they don't destroy Die. themselves right away. You know, like that's, that's the hard thing with the kind of the, the tough love approach or whatever you want to call it is that right. you can't know if that's the answer for that moment, if that's what they need or not. Um, A lot of my personal friends have now overdosed and died. I mean, over 15 of them. I, I mean, that's an insane amount. I'm 32. I'm 33 next month and 15 of my friends have died from like drugs or that's, that's so incredibly sad. It's, it's really heavy. I mean, that weighs on me every day too. And that's why I feel like I want to help people too. Right. Like I've seen the, the death destruction and, and the outcome, I think there's, you know, as they say in the recovery programs, it's only jails, institutions, deaths. Those are the only outcomes of continuing recovery use. So uh, the other outcomes recovery, that's where, that's where I want to help people get. I remember my friends and I think of how hard it is that so many are gone now. Uh, and right. I don't know, how do you, how do you let people go? How do you know when is the right time to help someone and not help them? You know, it's, it's not obviously an easy answer. Yeah. It's not an answer. There's not a direct answer because you can't tell what any individual needs at any given time. You can't tell when is the right time, when is too far, when it's time for you. Ultimately, the decision to cut someone off is not a choice on their behalf. It's a choice on yours. It's a choice for your mental well-being and how much more you can give to any individual any time. You know, uh, you can you can try and say that this is what this person needs, but you you don't really know. You know that it's what you need that you right. can't you know give any more to this person, and all you can do is hope that that's the the signal they need to recognize that it's they, they've gone too far. Yeah, I've gone through it like sponsoring people too, and realizing that they're going to lie to me, and that I'm you know I'm going to in some way manufacture the same relationship with them initially that they have with the people enabling them. They're going to try those things and try to test me. That's why I had to get out of recovery for work. <laughs> it was affecting my own personal recovery. I did my best, but uh, fuck you, you carry that stuff with you when people are dying inside and you, you see it on everyone's face. They come in yellow and most of them come back. Most of them are go to fail. There's like 10% success rate for alcoholics. It's bad. Oh, well, that's the thing. The, the, and the thing as well with like having to walk away from it, knowing your own ability to, to give in <laughs> yeah. and how it affects you is that it's not, it's not a failure. It's not an ending. It's not, you know, the, the end of the line there. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, a pause or a reprieve, um, you know, your time. The same thing goes for people who can't stay on the wagon, you know, who right. keep falling off. It's still uh, not it's, a failure it's not a failure. It's, it's a, it's a reset or, you know, and again, it's important to consider the progress of it. You know, not, not everyone has to be done right away. It's not easy yeah. with, it, with quitting anything, you know, whether it's, you know, hard drugs or alcohol or even something like cigarettes or whatever it is, the, whatever addiction you are having a hard time stopping, you know, or, or some, an activity uh, that you need to get away from or one that you need to do more of. Uh, right. It's not about, you know, doing it and staying doing it because it's, it's kind of 
an impossibility or at least an extreme difficulty and rarity. It's about, you know, the ability to get back and do it again, you know, when, when pick yourself up and get back on, you know, trying, you know, you just can't give up completely. That's, that's the big thing. A lot of people still have more research to do. They have more uh, uh, experiences with drugs. They have to have, they have to get a little bit lower. Always respect someone for going back out and coming back in. I think that's really the most powerful thing you could do yeah. um, and to show people you could come back. That's, that's meaningful. And, and you can't measure your success by comparing yourself to others. Right. You know, because somebody else was able to do it, you know, and you're struggling, that doesn't make you, you know, a failure or any less successful than they are because we're all different and we have different struggles and experiences and you can't measure it. You just, you literally can't compare. You just have to be able to assess for your own situation and be able to take the steps that you need to heal and recover. Almost everyone will relapse. Wouldn't it be better if they just keep coming back anyway? Um. That's the thing. And that's why like something like, uh, you know, criminalization of, you know, these, these such things right. of abuse is not, yeah. it's not productive. No, um, it's, because... it's really punishing disease in a way. Yeah. It's, it's really like the system and, and the government deciding that disease should be punishable. I mean, we think about these things from like the middle ages where people are very punished for being different and being abnormal. And we're still really on that uh, 50 years uh, of the war on drugs, by the way, this week. Well, this is definitely a uh, topical episode then. I think uh, a really great pick that we had for it. Uh, I'm, I'm still impressed by the film. Uh, I I the, fir- the first time I saw it, uh, I was, I was definitely taken with it, but it didn't stick with me as much as say some of Wilder's <laughs> other stuff. I like the comedies. I think yeah. everyone likes the comedies. Uh, you this know, and one I doesn't like... have that personality you could stick to. I think it's it's a bit harder to swallow. And Wilder is famous for his his cynicism and his bleakness. You know, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole. They're all very dark, macabre films in their own right. But this one might be the most uh, just just the hardest pill to swallow of them. Uh, it's almost like a horror film. You know, watching, you know, Milan suffer through these and, and not even in the more like kind of overt ones, even though those scenes of him like in in the, the, the drug ward or where he's like in his room and he's having the, you know, the hallucinations and stuff. Those aren't even necessarily the most affecting to me. You know, sometimes it's just like like watching him just abuse and like get stuck in the situation and, and stumble around or like where he's where he's stealing the woman's purse you know just to get those couple bucks so that he can you know buy another drink it's just it's depressing and, and debilitating and, and heart-wrenching and you know it's it's embarrassing as well to, to kind of watch and, and experience for him but also like like very humbling and you know you, yeah. you sympathize so much i think milan does such a good job of making us like him and be charmed by him and, and want to see him succeed and, and and that makes it even harder just to watch him like right. suffer through everything here if you if because it'd be very easy to demonize a character like this and uh you know because just from outright you know outright he's deceitful but like i said yeah. in the in the beginning here like that that coy like kind of like playful quality that wilder brings over and how it's kind of like it's you know he's got this you know trickster kind of quality to it even though it's again it's a destructive kind that that helps us appreciate the human elements of him that you know 
that we can sympathize with him as a person as opposed to looking at him as a product of his disease. Milan here has one of my favorite performances I've seen in a film because I'm oddly often against the feeling of um, recognizing yourself in the film and, and just getting, oh, that was relatable out of it. Although I've experienced so many of the horrors and I feel them so deeply and I see the spiritual and psychological battle happening on the film and happening on the screen, how can it not resonate at that point? Um, I think it still matters that films derive so much empathy and compassion, whether or not it's about how much we feel like we're embodied by the person on the screen. I think it still matters that we're feeling so deeply about it, like with the Bourdain doctor, like the Lost Weekend, where I think they are like primary recovery texts in an important way, and they're going to help people and change them in significant ways. I doubt the Lost Weekend's going to reach that much of an audience now that I doubt it's going to be like shown at rehab. People are going to be like, oh, that, that, that film changed my life. I'm going to go seek recovery. But uh, I think uh, I think once you study it and once you've been in recovery for a while, I think it's a, a good mature take on the subject that you need to get to. I did say, by the way, that something changed in my watch this time. Oh, yes. I wanted to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to know, because like you said, the, the last time you watched this, what, what kind of really, it was it was like a perfect watch for you and something you deeply, deeply resonated with. And I'm sure it still is, but yeah. you said there's something that you, you wish it had done more. And I... I should say I'm keeping it at a 10. I just don't think it's it's like my highest 10 of recovery. I I mean, I have like... Is, I have this like the, is this the best recovery movie? I have this and Rocket Man as my two favorites. So there, there's these They're two. And I mean, there's, there's a handful of others that I really respect, but few that are really great movies that also happen to be recovery. There are a few other recovery movies that I should write about all of them eventually i think i think that would make a great piece i've still yeah. I said even since the first time watching last weekend i think you've got a, a a very important perspective on it and other recovery films and whenever those movies come up in, in like reviews and such that's always an appreciated angle um you, so you know particularly if, if one doesn't get it right because i think that's an easy subject matter that people who otherwise aren't you know aware of can kind of just like congratulate without appreciating the the approach and nuance of it just kind of give it a blanket pass without recognizing perhaps the ways it might misrepresent or the destructive manners in which it depicts uh recovery and uh addiction so the last weekend um the difference this time is I've read some of the book. So oh, okay. uh, that, that can always be a problem when you're watching a movie. I've read about I, half of the uh, Charles Jackson book over the last I, week. I, I do know about one element in the book that for obvious reasons didn't make it to the movie. Is, oh, you're going to get to my point already, aren't you? <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you say what it is. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. What, what's the what's the element first? Well, the, the element from my understanding, having not read the book, is that the author imbued the character with, um, you know, a... a, a homosexual aspect okay. to his character as well that's as uh, present there that obviously wouldn't translate to the screen in 1945 uh so it was just entirely axed from from the screenplay uh yeah. is that the thing that you're that you're taking issue with yeah that so the book plays as autobiography of a kind for the author and as like a closeted um, homosexual which wouldn't have been appreciated at that time in the same way uh the parts that are that way are really really hard to like get on screen it's a lot of implication and innuendo that might not have really landed in 1945. I, I don't, um, I, I will say for the film, I don't think it comes across in it at all. It I don't think you get that all. sense whatsoever. And I don't think that's necessarily a, 
bad thing, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say with the context of the novel. So, so I've read about half of it, but I think enough to get into a discussion about what happened there. Um, I, I think the meat of a recovery story should be that, as we say in meetings, our stories disclose in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I think missing from the character's motivations are slices of what it was like, especially within the movie. After reading it in the book and experiencing so much of what it was like, what transpired that led them to drink, but most importantly, what was the internal struggle that the alcohol solved for them? Uh, it's like deeply cataloged in the book, and uh, which you know I've read enough of now. In the text, the experience of the character's struggle with homosexuality and alcohol is like a repressive solvent that he uses to get around like some of his uh, inhibitions about who he really is and how he identifies with common man. Um, and for him, he could not be himself. So he drank to be someone else, which is one of the most common motivations. Um, the movie may just be missing the why of the typical alcoholic story, I find. Uh, but it's nonetheless powerful for like in the most realistic terms, assessing the other two parts of the story. So it does very well at covering the parts of what happened and what it's like now. But I believe the whole movie kind of lived in the what happened section and not the what it's like. We get like the one flashback scene, which establishes, okay, that's kind of what he was like before. But um, I, I really don't get a sense for his deep connection to alcohol, why he drank, other than that he drank because he needed to write. Um, I think it's a lot weaker at building that than the book, but I think it's a lot more powerful in at least 10 different ways that Billy Wilder might be a better writer. And uh, I think he brings so much more to the screen. I just have to point out that the book has strengths that the movie doesn't have. Um, and it is autobiographical in a way that wouldn't be fair for Billy Wilder to portray it at that time. I think that's a very fair critique and, and uh, I think an undeniable <gasps> one. Shit. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Scare the fuck out of me. Me too. <laughs> We yeah, both jumped it, at the same time. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good scare there. We're very engaged in this, and then just you know, I don't know. Yeah. So, so as we were saying there, um, I think it's a very fair critique and a very undeniable one of it. Obviously, again, like the motivation has changed, so it's like it's about fueling his writing. Which you're right, we. Don't, but at the same time, I feel like that's a strong component as well. The fact that we don't see I agree. his success before because it it just shows the. The fruitlessness of this the 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 lack of reason behind it again it doesn't justify the drinking there's no justification element of it there and particularly if you want to tackle the homosexual theme i think it would be very easy uh even now nowadays to uh, unintentionally weave the elements together there and create this uh idea that the the homosexuality is a, is a sin and a vice as well well maybe back then when being an alcoholic would have been a little bit more uh dangerous and being homosexual yeah. would have been a little bit more dangerous that combined thing uh, obviously there would yeah it would just it would have been a exceedingly negative portrayal of uh homosexual identity yeah um but i, I think it yeah it it sounds like the book does a terrific job of balancing that it doesn't come across that way and then it's it's nice to see then that uh, an adaptation is a wholly different work in many ways as well and is able to to channel that but i agree that the uh the, the film is not concerned with his past life which you kind of it's get important. as well and yeah. yeah yeah in the backstory section i think the back the the, the flashback structure even though it's, it's really well like visualized like i love, yeah. I love the way that wilder transitions between the two uh, it doesn't feel as different from the current day, obviously. No, and so it can be very easy to like 
muddy your understanding there. There was one time on this rewatch where I was like, what, what hold on, I, I lost track of events because oh. they kind of, they melded together, even though it's, it's pretty clear the transition between the two, but they do have so much DNA in terms of the, the, the problems with the character there. So yeah, that it, it's more so like it's a flashback to him getting into the relationship with Jane Wyman and, you know, the, the discovery of the, the point of no return here than it is why he's drinking. Like I say, it uh, between the what it's like, what happened, what it's like now, it's spent all of its time and like the what happened and the what it's like now is even like, it's very questionable. We look at it like, is he really done? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Which again, I, I say you could, you could also read as a as a positive end as well. Yeah, end yeah. End. It's not it's not a solution. Like the the end of the film comes and it does end on an optimistic note, kind but of not yeah. not necessarily the idea that he has overcome it. And I think right. if you did end on that, it would feel very insincere that he's just oh he's cured now he's he's no longer gonna touch a bottle again. Right. And and the film also smartly ends by uh you know playing to this idea that he he's not the only one that there's so many other souls out them like you know like him who who are struggling with the same problem in the same manner and you know don't have the the resources to overcome it so it does feel like his story is is one of many and so again uh, the idea that the film ends and it's not necessarily the end of his his addiction story he may and probably will relapse again and still struggle with this but you know it's the beginning of him recognizing the problem is really on you know like has to be dealt with now as opposed to like in the beginning of the film where he's just trying to circumvent those who are who are trying to help him you know and he's just looking to still continue to feed his addiction despite you know all the roadblocks people put in his way i feel like we have it very well covered i feel like we've done a lot today <laughs> is is there is there any section of the film you feel like is is particularly powerful at capturing something about addiction that that other films or media haven't achieved i do think it's like the the small tendencies the hiding of things the lying and uh, the general lived-in performance of the alcoholic too i don't feel like he ever escapes it by showing what it was like and only that part primarily you really get a strong sense for uh for what it was like you get that sense of how it must have developed and how strong the addiction must have had a hold on him. I think it has a, a, a better sense of that than most films do, especially about alcohol. There are a lot of great ones about drug addiction now, but uh, as far as alcohol goes, I think this is still the king of recovery movies. Yeah, I, I should certainly say so. And it's nice to have your perspective on that, especially and your whole story to, to kind of inform how you approach and process the film and how it still resonates uh, today and how it stands up. Uh, it's, it's a film that's often kind of overlooked uh, in, in Wilder's filmography, despite its accolades, even by myself here. Yeah. And so it's nice to come back to it here and really recognize and process its, its strengths and its um, you know, works and the identity of it as a Wilder film mm -hmm. uh, against his, his more, I don't know, ex accessible or enjoyable works. Uh, this one is definitely hard to watch in stretches, but also it's, it's meticulously crafted and I should say uh, entertaining and and moving. Well, uh, we'll be back uh, next week with a point break. And until then, David, you want to uh, lead us out in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the sure Twin Geeks Prayer. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. 
Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast with Pablos and Brogan, as well as our other Ranking the Monsters show with Calvin and Steven, uh, both available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Now maybe I did not mean to treat you bad, but I did it anyway. And then maybe some say your life was saved, but you lived it anyway. And so maybe your friends that stand around you watch you crumble as you fall down to the ground. And then someday. Your friends that stand beside as you were flying Oh, you were flying all so high But then someday people look at you They're what they call their own, they watch you suffer Yeah, here you're going home And then someday we can take our time To brush the leaves aside so you can reach us Yeah.